Um, so let's, let's pray real quick. Well, let me start out with a quote, and then we'll pray. So Spurgeon's my guy. I'm going to give you a Spurgeon quote before we even start today. And then, so it's out of the way, you know, because you know one's coming every week. But he wrote this. I am bold to tell you that my master's riches of grace are, not, are so unsearchable that he delights to forgive and forget enormous sin. The bigger the sin, the more glory to his grace. If you are overhead and ears in debt, he is rich enough to discharge your liabilities. If you are at the very gates of hell, he is able to pluck you from the jaws of destruction. Let's pray. Jesus, we uh, worship you for your, you have come after us and searched us out and rescued us. And God, you have delighted to forgive us, even though, God, we sometimes even don't understand what that costs you. But God, your character is so loving and so kind that you are looking for ways to pour out grace in our lives, looking for ways to forgive. God, change us to be like you. Change us and make us like you, Jesus. Lord, we ask that you would use this portion of your word to completely transform our outlook on church and our lives and our relationship with you. Lord, let us be different today when we walk out of here than when we came in. And God, I pray that repentance would just be on our lips and, and, and rise from our hearts, that our hearts would turn to you. And God, that doesn't mean that any of us in here are walking in gross sin or, or fleeing from you right now, but God, we could all just draw closer to you and turn to you in a new way, a new level of dependency and humility before our King. God, meet us here. Be everything to us, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. The church is a big mystery. It's almost like magic. You know, that the gospel, the, the message of the church can be told to someone. Someone can just be out there and, and see two people reading the Bible and come up to them and say, why are you doing that? And, and you have an opportunity to tell them, well, there's a simple message called the gospel that I'd like to inform you about. And so you can tell someone this simple message of the gospel, no matter how evil or how lost or how insufficient that person is, if they believe it in their heart, they will be saved and transformed. That God will come in and completely wreck who they were and rebuild it into a new person. It's so simple, this, this gospel, this message, that it's offensive to the great skeptics and critics, critics of past ages and our age today. It's offensive to them. They're like, you're telling me that you just trust God and and he changes you, and you don't have to put forth any real hard efforts into it. You just trust the Lord. Well, I, I just think that's simplistic and childish. It's amazing. And it's so powerful that it never fails to work. It's always a complete work in someone's life. It's so simple, and it's so powerful, and it's so equalizing that it destroys every class and barrier used to separate people. And the fourth thing about this gospel, this simple message that we're teaching, is that it's energizing. It's so energizing that it provides all that a believer now needs or could ever need simply by faith. So this gospel, it's simple, it's powerful, it's equalizing, it's energizing, it's almost unfair. Because, you see, the Jews, man, they put more effort into their relationship with God than you or I could ever imagine. That's the way life was back then. From the moment a child could talk, they were learning the Torah, and they were memorizing. In fact, most Jewish boys had the Torah memorized by the time they were 13, which is just unbelievable to us, that kind of effort. I mean, we see people memorize large portions of things, or Shakespeare, and you were like, wow, that's amazing, they have so many lines memorized. But that's just what life was back then. They put effort, and not only just the memorization of the scriptures, but they, they had 
all these laws and all these rules to keep, and they did it. They, they, were, they put huge amounts of effort in. Yet, their sin always got the best of them. Their sin was always right before them. And they would have to come make a sacrifice. And, and they'd have to kill a lamb or a, a sheep or a bird in order to cover over that sin. But it didn't take away the sin. And they always knew, no matter how hard I try, I still am a sinner before God. So then Jesus came. He died on the cross as the ultimate sacrifice and provided a new way to relate to God called the new covenant. The new covenant in his blood given for us, which if a person lives in this new covenant, they can have perfect and unbroken connection with God by faith alone, by trusting in what he did and does for us on a daily basis. It's a big mystery, you see, because it means that, that we can, can know God and walk with God and be in his presence even if we sin. And that, to the Jewish mind, was unfathomable because they understood how holy God was. They understood how, understood how wonderful God was. And that kind of grace is unfair. It's too simple it's too powerful. It's, it's equalizing in a way that I think maybe it shouldn't be. Wow, this is just unbelievable. And it's a mystery. And the word mystery in the Bible means it was unknown and it was unable to be known until God revealed it. And that's what we get to study today is this mystery of the gospel and how God chose to reveal it, what it is, and what purpose it serves. That's what we're looking at today. So I'm going to give you our outline before we get started, just so you know. We're in chapter 3, and in the first five verses, we're going to learn how, this, how God revealed this mystery of the gospel, this crazy, powerful, simple message that just transforms people, how God revealed it in verses 1 through 5. Then, what is the mystery in verses 6 and 7? And then, why God used Paul to tell us the mystery in verses 8 and 9, and then the purpose of the mystery in verses 10 through 13. So again, how God revealed the mystery, what is the mystery, why God used Paul to tell us this mystery, and what is the purpose of this mystery. So that first section here is how God revealed the mystery. And let's read in chapter 3, verse 1. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles. Let's stop right there. Paul is writing this letter of Ephesians from house arrest. He could walk around in his house during the daytime. He couldn't leave. He was being watched during the day. But at nighttime, he would be chained to a Roman guard. And most would look at that situation and they'd say, you are a prisoner of Rome, Paul. But Paul saw the world totally different than someone on the outside. He said, I am a prisoner of Jesus Christ. I'm only a prisoner in chains because Jesus wants me to be. This is not some random hardship that has come upon me. This is exactly where God wants me to be, and thus, I am a prisoner of Jesus. If Jesus wanted me free, he could make me free. If he wants me to be here, then I'm here. Well, why would God do that, is our question. Why doesn't God make everything great and easy for Christians? Why doesn't he give you everything you want? Why doesn't he make life for his followers easy? Because then we'd have something to share to those people. Hey, if you follow Jesus, everything will be great in your life, and you'll never be a prisoner. You'll never go through hardships. You'll never get cancer, and you'll never get fired from your job. And your Broncos would never lose. But that's not how it happens. Sin and unrighteousness rules the NFL, our lives. <laughs> and my team loses. But why does God do that? It's a serious thing because it causes many to fall away when they don't get their way. 
when they don't get what they think God should do for them, they're like, ah, this God, this old Christian thing isn't working out for me. Jesus, I, I, I like what he did for me on the cross, but my life is too hard. And all these trials I don't get. And so if I don't see the purpose, then I, I lose heart. But because, let me tell you the answer. Why does God do this? It's because the trials and tribulations that we go through are God's way of letting the world see the glorious things he's done in your heart. See, if you had no trials, who cares? What is your life's value? You're happy because your life is great. But when we have joy, when God produces in us a fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, self-control, and in the midst of a trial, though that fruit still comes out, a mysterious thing happens. People see that. The world sees it. He actually draws their eyes to it. And they watch you go through your cancer. And they watch you go through your job search. And they watch you go through your struggles. And yet have fruit of the Spirit. And they say, that is mysterious and unbelievably weird. And I want to be part of it. So tell me, how can I become part? How can I be like you? Because I'm going through this and it's devastating me. It's destroying me. And you are saying, praise the Lord. Well, the first lesson in how God reveals his mystery, Paul says, is he lets trials come into our lives. Our first words when these trials generally come in is, oh no, why has this come upon me? If you talk in old English, it's like, what's going on now? That's today. What the heck? But I, I, I ask that maybe we pray for a change of heart and let our first words be praise the Lord in humility and faith. Not, I'm so bummed about this, but just, I'm going to submit to you, God. I'm going to surrender to you. And I say, praise the Lord. It takes humility because that's not what I feel like doing. And it takes faith because I've got to believe that God is working here. And so God will use that. Think about it. What good does complaining ever do in your trials? And instantly, a lot of you in your mind said, it makes me feel better. And that's true. It makes, you, it makes your flesh feel better. But what it does in your heart is a different thing. See, when we complain about our struggles and our trials, it, it causes us to actually, in our heart, start to yearn for a way out. Our goal and our ambition is to end whatever suffering we're in ASAP, to get it over with. But if we first trust the Lord, and we express that trust with an audible, praise the Lord, you will actually be training your heart to look for God's grace and power to be seen in and through your trial. And you'll be like Paul here. He said, I'm a prisoner of Jesus. Praise the Lord. You mean to tell me that I just blindly accept every bad thing that comes into my life and actually thank God for it? Praise Him? I know that it feels like giving in, like giving up. And that's why it's called surrender. Can you imagine a, a warrior fighting in some bloody, horrific battle for days and days and days? And, and, and all their effort going towards that, that end of, I want to win this battle to get this victory, gain what I'm after, what I'm fighting for. And then the, the, the almost devastation and humiliation that they feel when they say, I can't win, and so I'm going to put up the white flag and surrender. And yet that's where grace starts to flow like a waterfall into our lives. When we will humble ourselves and, and say, God, I, this trial has the best of me. This trial is too big for me. 
And it, it's cause, it's stressing me out and it causes me to understand that I don't have it inside me to just succeed in this. And so, God, I just surrender to you. I just, I'll just say, praise the Lord. And God says, finally, that's what I've been waiting for. Here's some grace. Here, let me just start pouring out my grace into your life. Trials aren't walls to seeing God work in your life. No, they are pathways to his grace, which is his help, his resources freely given to us. Now look at verse 2. He says, if indeed, I'm a prisoner of Jesus. So if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of grace of God, which was given to me for you. Let's pause right there. In other words, he's saying it's common knowledge to all the church. The strategy, that means that's the dispensation, the strategy that God has given me to reach everyone for Jesus. And that strategy is called grace. It's not works anymore. Imagine if it was. Imagine the good news Paul could have gone around sharing. Hey, everybody, you need to work harder to keep God's rules and commands. You need to just try hard enough and that one day you might make God happy enough to be friends with him. Well, that's... Not good news. That's not grace. That's not the gospel. And that's not his strategy. Because there was already a whole nation doing that. The whole Jewish nation was going around saying, we are trying hard. We are putting our effort. We're relating to God by works so that we can be God's people. And they were trying so hard and they were trying harder than anyone else. And so there was the Gentiles, which was everyone else in the world. Everyone who wasn't Jewish, who said, those Jews, they are trying really hard, and I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do what I think is right, which feels good. Then there were some Gentiles who thought, well, the Jews' God is, is pretty much the right God. I mean, I believe he's God that created heavens and the earth, and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to synagogue with them. And those were called the God-fearing Gentiles, but still Gentiles. So Paul could have gone around just saying that, but he wouldn't have been changing anything. That's not good news. That's not the gospel that Jesus came. He could have said, man, just try harder. But as opposed to that, this is what he said. He said, God loves you. God has provided everything you need in Christ Jesus. And you just need to believe and trust him. And full intimacy with God is yours. You're adopted and made a citizen in his kingdom for free. So, this is the natural question that happens after that. After someone hears the good news. Okay, you're telling me it's not about efforts, it's about grace. I'm getting that. So, are you telling me that I can live however I want after I believe in Jesus and accept Jesus? Does that mean I don't really have to repent of my sin? No, it doesn't. Because we learn that it's the kindness of God that, what? Leads to repentance. This great kindness, this great love, this great grace that God has provided to us, free entrance into his presence, as we believe, it leads us not, not to go out and smoke a bowl, not to... Not to Sleep with whoever we want to sleep with. That kind of love does not lead to those things. It leads to repentance, saying, God, if you love me that much while I was an idiot, how much I, I want to be near to you. I want to be close to you. And so if I see, if you prompt me in my spirit that I'm sinning, I'm going to repent of that sin because your love is all of it I need. It's all I want now. And so, we are led to repentance by love, by his kindness, by this gospel of grace that he says, verse 3, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written you already, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, 
which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, but as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. So this gospel, this life-transforming grace, is actually not a new thing. I mean, actually is a new thing. Excuse me, I misspoke. It actually is a new thing, this gospel. And Paul was really the first guy that was given revelation of how all this grace works. And does, it, does that mean it was not in the Bible beforehand, like the Old Testament? And the answer is no. People just didn't understand it and apply it the way Paul and the other apostles were supernaturally enabled to explain it and apply it to our lives. Nobody ever thought, in the whole Old Testament, nobody ever thought a relationship with God could ever be anything but by works. They always thought it was going to be, maybe God would, would, would fill up what was lacking or something like that. Nobody ever understood the fullness of His grace. Even though as we look back, we can see verses in the Old Testament that proclaim that it was coming. Like in Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-one, which we've looked at and we should look at again, but we're not going to today for the sake of time. So, how was this mystery revealed in verses 1 through 5? Let me summarize for you. He revealed it, God did, by his Holy Spirit that Paul should teach people about grace. He revealed by his Holy Spirit that Paul should teach people about grace. And this is vitally important because I, I firmly believe this is the vision that God has given me for our church. You know, Ed was praying for me and praying that God would give me a vision. And he gave me a name first as kind of the, the, the hallmark of our vision. I was like, okay, white flag Calvary, and I get, I get the surrender part. But then he gave me really quickly, and I didn't even understand it really at the beginning, worship, study, and surrender. If you look at our, our big banner outside, it says worship, study, and surrender. And on our website, worship, study, and surrender. And that's our, our, our vision, okay? And so, it, as I was studying this today, or this, for this sermon today, I was just amazed at how this just perfectly explains our vision. It's the vision and direction for our church to teach people about grace. I am not going to have a vision of, I want people who do all the right things all the time. I want people who dress right. I want people who are cool. None of those things. I want to teach people about grace. But what about holy living? Oh, it's really important. And grace makes people repent. When they understand God's kindness, His love, they will repent. And I firmly believe that. And so I'm not going to come up here and say, repent of going to see your evil movies. Repent of... Uh, I'm not going to do that. I don't need to. Not in my job description. Jesus said, tell them how much I love them. Tell them much how, how I care about them. And I will produce fruit in their lives, in their heart. So, our vision of worship, study, and surrender lines up perfectly with grace. For grace is given to the humble. James 4, 6 and 1 Peter 5, 5 both quote Psalms, which says, God gives grace to the humble, but he opposes the proud. So if I want you guys to receive grace, I'm going to teach you to be humble. We're going to learn about humility. And you know where that comes from? In our time of worship. It can, be, it can feel humiliating to worship God, can't it? And it makes us uncomfortable. And we're, we're there and we're singing a song and we're thinking about oh, everyone else around us and what they're thinking of me. We're thinking, oh, you know, sometimes I, I see the people raising their hands and some do it like this, this, this. Everyone's got their different way. Is that what I'm supposed to do? Is that what worship is? And, and it's humbling. It's humbling. And so you ask the Lord, you're like, Lord, how should I worship you? And maybe he does say, raise your hands to me. And it takes humility to say, okay, God, I don't care. What, what, what if I got pit stains? What if I'm sweaty, God? And God's like, 
worship me. You'll be blessed. I will pour out grace on your heart if you worship me. So humility, worship as the first way that we engage with grace, that I teach you guys grace, that our church is learning about grace, is through worship. Then the second is study. Well, there's a great verse that says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So when we study, we're growing in faith. Whether you believe it or not, whether you think it or not, God is building your faith as we study the word of God. And in Romans 5.2, it says that we have access into this grace in which we stand by faith. So if, God, if I want God to pour out his grace on your life, I'm going to teach you about humility. And if I want you to access his grace, then I'm going to teach you about faith. We're going to study the word of God. So worship produces humility. Studying produces faith. Both of which are how we get grace. How we learn in grace. It's amazing how this works together. And then the third part of our vision is surrender. Putting humility and faith together in relating to God is surrender. Putting humility and faith. God, I think it should go this way, but I just worshipped you and I just studied your word and, and so, God, I, I can't do what I was doing before. I'm going to surrender to you. And that worship, study, and surrender is the recipe for you guys being blessed and living godly lives. I believe it with all my heart. And that's going to be our vision from now until I die. And I hope the next pastor after I die keeps the same thing. Because I believe in it with all my heart. And I think it was Paul's strategy. He says, I have no other strategy. I've been going around telling people about grace. Telling people how much God loves them. Now, look at when we have this simple strategy of grace... I firmly believe that a mysterious thing happens and that's that it will transform us. It will make us into new men and women who are holy and who walk after God. And that's where we come into verse 6 and 7, which is the, what is this mystery? What does it do? And we have been looking at the threefold different things. Each week we see a, a set of three and that this is where the set of three truths come in. It's the threefold equality that the grace or gospel brings. But let's read verse 6. It says that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs, that's number one, of the same body, that's number two, and, of, and partakers of his promise, that's number three, in Christ through the gospel, of which I became a minister according to the gift of grace of God given to me by the affecting work, the effective working of his power. Okay, so what is this mystery? What is grace? What is the gospel? And he, he describes it here in an interesting way. He says, it's, it's that he focuses on the Gentiles. It's that the Gentiles would be fellow heirs and of the same body and of his promise. See, the mystery of the gospel is that the Gentiles could get saved. Not only saved, he says, but these three things. They could become heirs or children of God and part of the same body, even closer than his children, part of his own body and partakers of his promise. See, people could understand how a Jew could receive these things. They had a heart for God. They were trying really hard. They had a previous relationship with God and God had come through many times with supernatural miracles to save them. They were the people of God. And they were looking for God's promised help, the Messiah. But the Gentiles? No way. As you looked at, if you lived in the world back then, they were totally wicked people. Slime balls and scumbags, and they loved it. The best way I can picture it for you would be the land of Mordor in the Lord of the Rings. Just think of it, a land filled with orcs and goblins and every kind of gross and selfish debauchery. That's what everyone outside of Israel was. And for God to go around saving these people was outrageous and unbelievable. 
And even at the end of The Lord of the Rings, everyone cheered when all the orcs get swallowed up by the ground. Spoiler alert. I guess I said that in the wrong order. I should have told you about the spoiler before I told you the end of the movie. But our attitude when we see these wicked creatures get destroyed and sent to hell is like, yeah, so happy. And that's you and me. We, most of us in here, came from the Gentiles. People who had no heart for God, no relationship with them, and yet God opened us up and saved us. We live in a Judeo-Christian society today. It's hard for us to comprehend this level of sinfulness and and hate and hate and selfishness that the Gentile world lived in back then, but our world is changing every day, and we can kind of see, you know, there's areas that just have no care in our world for, for what's right. But the gospel is a power that the world has never seen before. They had never seen it back then. The gospel changed everything. The gospel made these wicked people good. It changed them. In both standing, they could stand with God and say, I'm right before you, and in lifestyle. They started being good. They started loving, even though they didn't even know the Ten Commandments. They had no idea. And yet, God, through his grace, made them obedient, which is how the New Covenant works. The Jews were the ones trying to keep the Ten Commandments and failing, and these Gentiles, who didn't care at all, get saved, and now they're doing all the Ten Commandments, keeping them no problem, because they love the Lord. And His Spirit is working in them. What promise... Or, sorry. He took the slime balls and made saints. He took the scumbags and made saved people. And that's what's so amazing. People who deserved a death sentence... And weren't even looking for help, God rescued them anyway. He made them his children and part of his body and gave them the things he had promised to the Jews that he would do. What promise? What promise? Well, we are actually going to look real quick at Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31. And we're going to read the promise that he made. In Jeremiah chapter 31, this verse should pretty much be highlighted in your, in your Bible Because this shows so many truths that are vital for us to understand about the the new covenant, the way God works now. It says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. So this is the promise. Not according to the covenant I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, says the Lord. So that's the Ten Commandments. So it's not like that. It's not a list of rules to keep. It's a new way, a new covenant. He says, I will, this is it. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, and for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin will I remember no more. So there's three parts to that promise. First part is that their sin will be forgiven and forgotten. Not by a list of rules, but I'm just going to do it. That's the simplicity of the new covenant. If you believe, your sins are forgiven and forgotten. Number two, They can actually know me. See, by keeping the rules and by keeping the law and by keeping the Ten Commandments, they thought they knew God. But every time they broke one that that was broken and they, they didn't feel the connection, they didn't have that relationship anymore, and then they had to go make sacrifices and it was this big thing. But with us in the New Covenant, we can just constantly be growing in the knowledge of God. When you sin, you simply repent and you're forgiven. You come back to the Lord, you're forgiven. And, and our fellowship, our relationship isn't broken. 
And then the third thing is that obedience to my laws will come from their hearts, not outward efforts. That's what he says when he says that they're, I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. That means they're going to keep my rules. They're going to keep the law. But it's not because they're trying. It's an inward work by my spirit. And that's the beauty of the new covenant. That's why, that's what the mystery is. That's what the, the gospel is that we get to share with people. God will save you if you believe him and trust him. He'll do everything you need. So, what is the mystery? We just kind of explained a little bit. A thorough definition is the mystery is that the Gentiles are able to, sh- and think orcs and goblins and horrible people, are able to share with the believing Jews in all that God has promised his people. They are invited to the party, adopted to the family, grafted into the tree, whatever metaphor you want to use. They're in. So the third section is why God used Paul to tell us this mystery. He says in verse 8, back in Ephesians chapter 3, To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery. From the beginning of the ages, has been hidden in God who created all things through Christ Jesus. So, God chose Paul to be the apostle to the Gentiles. That, that's, again, those wicked people, the orcs and goblins pictured. The ones who knew nothing about God. He was to be the one who told all of them about God's riches given to them freely if they would just believe. And God chose him, even though he had nothing in common with them. Paul was an upstanding Jew, and before his conversion, and he would never have even talked to a Gentile or touched a Gentile. He hated them and had nothing in common with them. But God did a huge work in Paul's heart. He humbled him. He humbled him to the point where he honestly thought, as we see in this verse, that he was the least of all saints in importance. That means lower than all the Jews who believed and lower than all the Gentiles who were horrible. He thought he was the lowest. It's not that he didn't understand his role or authority, but he really thought that he was less important. And that's a great definition of humility. And that's what makes a good pastor, which is why Paul was amazing. And that's the reason why God used him. It's because Paul was humble. And that's an amazing lesson for our life. Because God has called you and he's appointed you to be a messenger to certain groups of people. And how is that going to happen? How is that grace going to be seen in your life like it was seen in Paul's? And the answer is humility. God gives grace to the humble, but he opposes the proud. When humility marks your life, grace will too. God's blessings and favor and resources freely given to the humble. But you could go with pride. And you could say, I have an awesome message for you and you need to listen to me because I'm important. Or we, we start to share and we realize that we think we're better than these people. But that's pride. And what we'll actually be doing instead of humbly receiving God's grace, is we will be standing against God and his work in our life. And yes, the message you may be sharing to someone might be true, totally true. You're a sinner and going to hell. But, if it's not done through humility, then God is not pouring out his grace in that conversation. And on the contrary, he actually has his hand up, holding you back, saying, you may not get any closer to me or to my grace and my blessings and my success that you want to have in your conversation, your witnessing, your evangelism. You can't have any success because you're being prideful. And humility 
man, it, it helps people to see the unsearchable riches of Christ. That's what Paul says. It's, it's like Paul was trying to figure out how to describe how good God's grace is. And he goes back and forth with words to describe it. And then he gets frustrated and just throws his hands in the air and said, I can't even begin to measure or describe God's limitless favor and love for us. It's unsearchable. And, and that's where you get some people that are like, Jesus is boring. Is Jesus boring? Is church boring? I find that impossible. In fact, he's so vast and limitless, yet completely accessible to us. Man, is it worth it to surrender your whole life to follow this Jesus? All your hopes, dreams, and desires? Yes, it is. He offers unsearchable riches to the one who humbles himself and trusts him. Unsearchable riches. And then he says, I offer these unsearchable riches to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages was hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ. Paul wanted to explain how this mystery of the gospel is all about love. And how does he do that? Well, he talks about the fellowship of the mystery and he takes us back to creation. He says, God is love, and the gospel is perfect and complete demonstration of his love for us. And so God calls us to love, and the gospel creates new hearts of love inside us, hearts that truly love God and, and truly love others. And this was always the goal of the law, but never really experienced by man on earth. See, if you, if you remember that story um, in, in Matthew chapter 22, uh, a lawyer came up to Jesus and he said, and he asked him a question, testing him. And he said, teacher, what is the great commandment of the law? Jesus said to him, that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, love God, and your soul and your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. This love of God brings us, this love is, sorry, I'm tongue-tied here. This love that God brings us in the gospel, the new covenant, Paul says here, was hidden in God before, before he even created the world. And that means that only God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit were able to experience love to its fullest extent. And it was even there when Jesus created the world, this says. And that's why it says that Jesus was crucified before the world began. Because he was already in love with you and determined to love you to the point of crucifixion as he was creating the heavens and the earth. And we looked at this topic actually in detail on Wednesday night. I encourage you to check out the study on our podcast. But Paul draws us back to that right here in this verse. He says, this love, this amazing gospel, this grace was, was all hidden with God and, and there when he created the worlds. So, why did God use Paul to tell us the mystery here in verse 8 and 9? Because Paul was a great humbled sinner. So he was a perfect messenger for God's love for sinners. Paul is a perfect messenger. So now the fourth section, our final section, is verses 10 through 13, and it's the purpose of the mystery. He says, verse 10, this is going to surprise you, by the way. I know it. It's going to freak you out a little bit. Check this out. To the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. So the purpose of this mystery begins with the church being used to show how amazing and incredible the wisdom of God is. So as God is going around and saving all these Gentiles, saving all these horribly wicked people and creating good people, it's showing how incredibly wise God is. It's the church, a group of saved sinners. 
It includes both the Jews and the, those wretched Gentiles, and it explains God's goodness. And people can argue theology all day long. They can go back and forth. This is your theology. This is my theology. And they can argue, argue religions and philosophies till they are blue in the face. But the true church is filled with sinners who used to be horrible, and now they're different and glorifying God, and it's the evidence and proof that no one can ever argue with. That's why the church is here. And God says, you redeemed people are my tool to teach a lesson. But a lesson to who? It said, be made known by my church to the principalities and powers in heavenly places. He had a lesson he wanted to teach to the angels. What? The church is here to teach a lesson to angels? Yes, it says that they are taught the manifold wisdom of God as they observe his work in and through the church. This is amazing. And this is not the only place that this is talked about either. Many places we knew we read in the New Testament of how angels are looking in and learning and observing the church and learning how wonderful God is and glorifying God. It's like every time an angel sees a sinner get saved, they're just dumbfounded. They're just shocked and amazed and almost offended. And they're like, how can he save that guy? Look, this guy had no life in him. That girl was horrible. And yet God save them. And it's a continual lesson for them, it says. Maybe they just can't even know life that's not in the presence of God, and they're amazed that we come out from this darkness and death. I don't know. But whatever it is, it's a powerful lesson to them. It said in verse 11, according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through him. The real point and treasure of the church for us to understand is the boldness and access and confidence that we have through faith. Everything that people desired for thousands of years and they worked so hard for is just given to us who believe. So we're given boldness, number one. It has the idea of freedom of speech in the Greek. We have the freedom to express ourselves before God without any fear of shame. I mean, if you want to tell God, I think that person's a jerk, go for it. You can tell God that. If you want to tell God, God, I'm not too happy with you right now, then you can do that. You have the freedom to not be afraid of what God is going to think of you. And this freedom, this boldness, he says here, it's so important for us to understand. Because if we're, if we're guarding our mouths and guarding our speech with God, you know what that means? You're fake. You're fake. I'm fake. When I say, oh, I, I shouldn't say that I hate this person, even though I really hate this person. And instead of allowing God to work and say, God, I hate this person, and your Bible says I shouldn't hate people, so I'm sinning. What can I do about that? Well, nothing. Jesus, will you forgive me? Yes. Okay, will you change me? Yes. Okay, wow, you just had a whole exchange with God and you grew as a person because you're honest. You weren't hiding and faking it with God. You were truly redeemed and become a spiritual person. So boldness is vitally important. Access, he says, you can actually use your free speech and speak directly to God. We don't just pray up to the air and send, or send a message in a bottle and hope it arrives. We have direct access to the king of the universe for our every request, conversation, or complaint. We just have access. And it doesn't go away if you sin. It doesn't go away with you're angry. It doesn't go away. Confidence is the third thing, which means we don't have to doubt. No matter your failings or shortcomings or sin... If you believe in Jesus, you still have access. And it may have been years 
of you wandering or disobeying. And you may be wondering, do I still have this access? And the answer is yes, you still have access. If you believe in Jesus, you still have confidence through him. And you can come back to the Lord and you can repent. And it's great. You know, we think sometimes our need is so great. But no matter the need, he won't laugh at you. God, I really need you to change my heart. But that seems like asking that is like asking you to part the seas or something or move a mountain into the sea. But remember, Jesus said, if you have a mountain, it needs to be moved. Trust me. And it can be done. No matter the problem, he has the answer. No matter the requirement, he has the resources and he will give them to whoever asks. So what's the purpose of this mystery? To show everyone, even the angels, how much God loves you and is committed to providing everything you need. He's committed. And so he says in verse 13, Therefore, I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is for your glory. So Paul, Paul began this discussion saying he's, a, he's in jail. He's in jail, but it's all part of this mystery coming to you. And he ends it with saying, but don't be upset that I'm in jail. By these hard things I'm going through, you get to learn about God's love for you. Because... I'm no longer wicked. I no longer think only of myself. I'm no longer that Pharisee that I was named Saul. I'm thinking of you, and I love you, and I, Paul, and the biggest picture of grace, my life, laid open, whipped, and beaten, and poured out for you. So don't lose heart. Because if God can transform a wicked person like Saul, by the mysterious power of the gospel, then he is going to be faithful to you as well. He will do it. So, that's our Bible study. Let's pray. Jesus, you are so faithful. Your word is so clear that you give all that we need for life and godliness. And Jesus I ask, Lord, that you, by your Spirit, would bring life into those hearts that need it. And you would give forgiveness to those hearts that are asking for it. And today, if you have never followed Jesus, and if you would like to make a a, a decision to trust him, then I invite you to pray with me right now. Jesus, I believe that you died on the cross for my sin. I believe that you will answer me when I call to you. And I believe that you will change me, change my heart, and take me from being someone that wanders to someone that's at home with you. In your family, in your kingdom, all by faith. Lord, I believe in you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.